This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast, Show 269. This is very important. I'm really glad that we're doing this podcast today because it does also impact those individuals who have not yet filed 2017 tax returns. So before September, I think it was towards the end of September 2017. Okay, so January to September of last year, uh, what we were allowed to take was a 50% bonus depreciation. What does that mean? Well, if you're running an Airbnb business and you bought new furniture for your business, you were potentially able to write off up to 50% of that purchase price immediately. And then the rest you would depreciate over the life of the asset. Effective in September of last year as part of the tax reform, they've upped that deduction now to 100%. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from biggerpockets.com. Your home for real estate investing online. What's going on, everybody? I'm Scott Trench, co-host of the Bigger Pockets podcast, here with my co-host, Mr. Brandon Turner. How's it what? going, Brandon? Man, I'm fantastic. How are you doing? I am doing great, although it's a nine-degree day here in nine Denver, Colorado. Nine degrees. Wow. wow. It's a little different from Hawaii, huh? A little bit different. Four, four surfing trips this week already, so, you know, it's, yeah. it's not bad. It's been good weather. I think- I think I'm actually going to go on a business trip to visit Brandon here in the next couple of days. <laughs> that is so what I hear. I, yeah, well, actually, when this show comes out, I think you'll have already been hanging out here. But uh, we'll see. Anyway, what's up, everybody? So today's show is uh, all about taxes, which I, everyone just turned off their podcast. They're like, I don't want to hear about taxes. But no, today is important because uh, there were a lot of big changes that happened recently under the new tax plan that was just announced. And today we're actually lucky to sit down with two CPAs that we look up to quite a bit around bigger pockets. And they uh, they dish out the dirty details about what's all involved and how it affects you guys. So it's uh, it's really, really good, good information today. Yeah, there's a ton of detail on the changes and how they're going to impact various different investing strategies, what rumors kind of were going around about some changes that didn't take place. And so those strategies aren't changing. So there's lots of information on both sides of this. Uh, I think that's really important in directing your strategy going forward. One thing to note is that much of what we talk about today does not affect what you're going to be filing in 2017. So that a lot of these changes are going to be taking place at January 1st, 2018 or later. There's one exception. Yeah, that um, that, that is the the one exception actually is super, super important. It's about uh, the way that, uh, what is it like? Changing from 50% bonus depreciation. Anyway, you guys are here all about it. Just listen up. But like Scott said, a lot yep. of this stuff doesn't take place until later. But uh, anyway, yeah, no, I, I think today's, I learned a ton on today's show. You know, sometimes our shows are very inspirational and they're like stories of people who are doing stuff. And then sometimes you just become a whole lot smarter after listening. So today's one of those, uh, you get really smart. So and one thing I'm excited about as a little teaser is I'm, I think a lot of entrepreneurs ha, ha, must have this question, uh, at least you and I did, but we've been too afraid to ask it, like maybe in a public <laughs> setting, which is what happens when you have a business that just fails, doesn't yep. produce any revenue, and you've put a lot of expenses into it? Can you write that off or not? What, you know, how's that work out? And, like when, and you try to, up, when you try to sell wooden sunglasses online for a year and end up selling hardly any? Yeah, yeah, I know all about yep, that. Yep. <laughs> I actually have a pair of wooden sunglasses. I got them for free. That's oh, why nice. probably the reason you didn't make probably why well, I didn't make any money. I just uh, you know give them out to everyone free. But uh, <laughs> who knows? Maybe bigger pockets someday will have wooden sunglasses for sale because they're pretty legit. Anyway, before Wouldn't we get that into that, be great? would it? <laughs> I almost ruined your great pun. All right, l- before we get into the rest of the show, let's hear uh, today's quick quick tip. tip. All right, short and sweet. Today's quick tip is taxes are important. Tax planning and knowing what to you make sure you get the most money out of your taxes and back and all that good stuff. So we actually put the tax book on sale. I think it's 20% off right now up until tax day. So uh, the book on tax strategies for the savvy real estate investor written by Amanda Hahn, who is one of our guests today, is on sale at biggerpockets.com slash store until tax day. But get it now because it's one of those books that it's hard not to make back the cost of a book. It's like, what, like 15, 20 bucks or whatever. Like, it's like really hard not to make that back a hundredfold over your life if you learn just one tip. So it's stupid not to own it. Go own it. Get it on sale right now. Biggerpockets.com is a store. And that book was written before the tax changes that have taken place. However, it is not a specific tactical book. There are specific tactical discussions in there, but what that book will give you is a fundamental approach of how to manage your business, how to set up your accounting, that kind of stuff, so that you can apply those fundamentals in a way that enables your accountant to do things much better, pick a good accountant, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And there's some cool bonuses that come with it as well when you buy it on Bigger Pockets. So check it out. 
Remember when you had to pay to get a lead's phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right, get high-quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do-not-call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Passive income without the property headache? It's possible. There's a way to invest passively in real estate and get monthly income without any tenants, maintenance, or property management. The Wealthy have been doing this for years, and if you're an accredited or high net worth investor, you too can collect cash flow without the headaches that come from owning rentals. How? By investing in a private real estate fund with PPR Capital Management. PPR's co-founder, Dave Van Horn, wrote the book on real estate note investing for BP. But he's not just investing in notes. Dave and his team also have an extensive background in commercial real estate. And with PPR Capital Management, they're strategically investing in both notes and commercial real estate nationwide. With over half a billion dollars in assets under management, PPR has provided individuals with a steady source of truly passive income since 2007 without ever missing a payment. Check them out at investwithppr.com. Again, if you're looking to get monthly passive income from an experienced team with a strong track record, go to investwithppr.com today. And now, I think we should just jump into this thing. I want to I wanna hear about taxes. Does that sound good to you, Scott? Sounds fantastic. All right. I, Mr. Brandon and Ms. Amanda Hahn, how are you guys doing? Doing good. good. Very so good. I, Thank it's you. like how I used Amanda's last name but not yours, Brandon. Brandon Hall. Yeah, Han. I know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Hall not Han. Yes, yeah, Hall not Han. Yeah. So uh, welcome to the show. You guys have uh, you know been on the show before, but uh, today is an important time of the year because it's tax time. It's like everyone's favorite holiday that lasts like four months. And so we're going to uh, go really, really deep and boring into taxes. We're actually going to read the tax code for like an hour and a half before we get into this thing. And then we're going to talk. I'm totally kidding. Uh, we're going to try to keep this light, fun and uh, helpful. I mean, kind of our goal today is like, what do investors that are listening to this need to know today uh, that's going to help them this year uh, going forward, tax code stuff, all that. So with that, before we get any further, I, I want to make sure people know who you guys are. So uh, maybe Amanda, you want to go first? Let us know who you are, what kind of your story is, and then we'll move to Brandon and find out the same. Sure, sure. I guess ladies first. Ladies first. Thanks for having me back on the show. I'm really excited to be here uh, with all of you fine gentlemen. Uh, my name is Amanda Han. I am with Keystone CPA and uh, we're a boutique small firm located in Southern California. And we specialize in working with real estate investors on how to save money on taxes and make best use of their funds, whether it's cash or retirement investing. Outside of that, outside of my time at work, I also am a real estate investor myself. Uh, Mainly my stuff is the boring long-term holds. Um, we have clients that do all sorts of stuff in terms of syndications, fix and flips, wholesale, but I'm a pretty boring investor in that, you know, it's strictly long-term holds because my passion uh, itself is actually still in, in tax and the planning side of things. Although I love having real estate as one of my uh, vehicles and I'm very fortunate to be able to see all the inside detail to our clients' numbers yeah. and be able to kind of mimic what it is that they're doing. So excited to be here. Lots of new um, new things to talk about and um, looking forward to the next 30 minutes or an hour. Cool. Uh, Brandon Hall. I run the real estate CPA. Uh, we're a virtual CPA firm. We work with uh, solely real estate investors. So similar to Amanda, where we're exclusively focused on the real estate niche. 
I also invest outside of the tax realm, so do hold my own rentals. And then I've got a capital group that we just started uh, middle of last year with a partner of mine. So we've been investing in some larger syndicates and uh, kind of expanding our knowledge there, which is cool because then I can go and talk to our clients that are doing the syndications and talk more on a one-to-one rather than uh, just purely from a, well, this is what I've seen. Now it's, this is what I've done. So, So let's really talk about it. Cool. All right. So well, go ahead, Scott. Awesome. I, I was going to say, uh, you know, can we get a quick overview of the changes that occurred in the new tax bill maybe and talk about that for a few minutes and kind of go through the high level changes and how they might impact real estate investors? How quick is quick? <laughs> <laughs> let's do Let's see if we can do it in five minutes or so. All right. Amanda, do you want to start or do you want me to start? <laughs> you can start. Okay. <laughs> all right. All the pressure. So there are lots of changes. I guess for me, the two biggest ones or the three biggest ones would be the new pass-through deduction. Uh, that's that's for sole props, sole proprietors, LLCs, and S-corporations. We've got 100% bonus depreciation. So that's up from 50% bonus depreciation. And then we've got the business interest limitation. And I'm thinking that the business interest limitation is probably one of the bigger negative impacts. It's going to be affecting a lot of people. Even though there's a huge exclusion, uh, if if you're earning less than 25 million, you're excluded. But then there's an exclusion to the exclusion, uh, which subjects a lot of what what I think a lot of real estate investors, even small time, to the new business interest limitation. So, all right. So I want to yeah, I want to take each of those and and go a little deeper on those three, if we could. So what what is pass through deduction? Maybe we start there. The first one you said. What does that What does that even mean? Do you want to take that, Amanda? Sure. So that, well, the boring term for that is section 199A for those of you code heads who want to write it down. (laughs) Uh, What does that mean? Like you were saying, Brandon, essentially it means that for certain types of income that we earn as taxpayers, that the first 20% of net taxable income could be at zero tax rate. Okay, which means if you made $100 of the right type of income, then maybe $20 of that would be at no taxes at all. So tax-free income, essentially. One of the biggest myths or misconceptions we see is in the media, you hear a lot about this flow-through entity tax benefit, flow-through deduction. So one of the questions we're getting a lot, especially now and also at the end of last year, is do I need to set up an entity? Do I need an S-Corp? Do I need an LLC to take advantage of this you know, 20% tax-free money? And the answer, like Brandon mentioned earlier, is no, you don't need to have a legal entity. It's strictly depending on what type of income. So one of the greatest things for investors, for those of us who own rental real estate, who are doing fix and flips, even syndications who are earning acquisitions fees, these all potentially qualify for this deduction or tax-free treatment, whether or not you have a legal entity. And that's an important point too, because we, we've had a lot of clients ask us, hey, should I change my entity structure? Like C corporations, they have a 21% pass-through rate. That sounds awesome. Well, C corps are still subject to the double taxation. So we're still saying no, this, this pass-through deduction that Amanda just described allows you to pretty much get a freebie deduction on your business income. Um, and you don't need to go set up an LLC in order to do that. So like, like Amanda said, you can be reporting on Schedule C or Schedule E and still qualify for the deduction. So let me put this into like a, a hypothetical sort of scenario. Let's say I, as an investor, I'm going to make, I don't know, let's say $50,000 next year on rental income, just from cash flow, And that's all the money I made next year. It's $50,000 in cash flow. Are you saying that like the first 20 of that, we just knock off and now I only pay tax on 30? Is that essentially the idea? Essentially, potentially. So if you're talking about the the key definition is what we're talking about is taxable income. And we all know as real estate investors, when you say you're making 20,000 cash flow, the reality is you're probably having zero or very low taxable income because from your cash flow, we're claiming home office, travel, depreciation, right? But assuming that cash flow equals your taxable income, then your example will be correct. Basically, 20% of that 50,000 would be taxed at zero rate. Um, One of the reasons this particular tax change or loophole is really beneficial to those of us who own rentals. And also, again, it does apply to people who are in the fix and flip business too. So the active real estate. One qualify qualifying question on this. So suppose I suppose using this example of uh, fifty thousand dollars, does my taxable income now go down to forty thousand dollars, or am I still do I still have a taxable income? Is my tax bracket going to be calculated based on that forty or fifty thousand dollar number? 
Right. So from what we understand, it's taxable income minus your 20% deduction. So your taxable income will be 50 or I guess gross taxable income would be 50. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then and then you would have the 20% deduction of 10 and then you would have the 40K deduction. But that's also assuming that the $50,000 is the qualified business uh, income. So your net operating income after depreciation, amortization, interest, taxes, all that stuff. So at the end of the day, what are we reporting on the tax returns as net income? If that's equal to taxable income, then yes. Yeah. You'd pretty much be paying taxes on 40K instead of 50. Okay, awesome. Let's talk about the second point that you mentioned earlier, which was moving the or increasing the depreciation schedule, advancing it from 50% to 100% bonus depreciation. Um, yeah, I can just add a little tidbit to that. This is very important. I'm really glad that we're doing this podcast today, Pink, because it does also impact those individuals who have not yet filed 2017 tax returns. So before September, I think it was towards the end of September, 2017. Okay. So January to September of last year, what we were allowed to take was a 50% bonus depreciation. What does that mean? Well, if you're running an Airbnb business and you bought new furniture for your business, you were potentially able to write off up to 50% of that purchase price immediately. And then the rest you would depreciate over the life of the asset effective in September of last year as part of the tax reform, they've upped that deduction now to 100%. So in that example, if you spend $1,000 on furniture and fixture, you're writing off the entire thing. And it's really important for those who haven't yet filed their tax returns to know that because if you're providing information to your CPA now, I know sometimes we say, well, you know, I bought it sometime last year. Let's just use middle of the road June. Well, that could mean you're losing out on the bonus depreciation. So you want to be pretty accurate about your date. Awesome. So that, that, that's really helpful. Brandon, you wrote an article maybe three, four or five months ago about the BARRR method, which is a buy, advertise, rehab, rent, refinance, repeat. And the reason you suggested that is because you wanted to begin marketing the property prior to making some of these repairs so that you could potentially have the option to write them off or I guess get this accelerated depreciation schedule or call expenses. Does that strategy change in light of this new rule? No, it doesn't. So that that strategy, by the way, most of our clients wait until the very, very end of the rehab to advertise their property for rent. So all they're doing is they're saying, hey, Mr. IRS agent, my advertisement date occurred after I was done with the entire rehab. So what we were saying is just advertise it right up front, then do the rehab. You're not going to place it into service the day that you advertise it because you still have to do a big rehab. But at some point along the line, we might be able to argue that the property is now in service and now some of the costs become operating costs rather than capital improvements. That doesn't change with the 100% bonus depreciation. Um, Well, I guess, no, no, that's that's not going to change because the the 100% bonus depreciation is going to be focused on the capital improvements. And, And just a quick note about that, we can't go buy a rental property and deduct the cost of the rental property. The reason for that is 100% bonus depreciation applies to property with a useful life of less than 20 years. So rental property has a 27 and a half year period. But what you can now deduct is like carpeting. Uh, if you get your driveway redone, uh, if you do any sort of landscaping, like say you take down a tree and plant a new one, that can all be 100% expensed now. At, so we'll starting September 2017 and going on into the future. I just wanted to add to that, um, and, and that's a great point, Brandon. We I do get that a question sometimes from clients. You know, if I bought a property for $100,000. Can I write off $100,000 now with a bonus appreciation? And I wish the answer was yes. Unfortunately, it's no. However, just another kind of layer of strategy, some of our listeners might be familiar with the concept of cost segregation. And that's essentially saying instead of saying the whole thing is building, we're going to accelerate this purchase price of $100,000 into carpet, flooring, and things like that. So what you can do is you can combine the two strategies and say, well, by doing a cost segregation, I'm moving some of that into 100% deductible item. So that could be an extremely powerful tool as well. And on that note, I'm glad you brought up cost segregation. So anybody with a relatively large property, especially if you're syndicating any sort of deal, cost segregation is going to become extremely important for you to take advantage of in the first year. You want to apply that cost seg study to the first year that you buy the property, because at that point, all of the components in the property are new to you. So bonus depreciation only applies if the components are new to you. So we wouldn't want to do it in the second year, apply that cost seg study to the second year, because at that point we can't qualify for the bonus depreciation. So big, uh, big benefit there to cost seg. 
I guess another point, Amanda, maybe you have some thoughts on this. The 1031 exchange provisions have been modified to only include real. And Amanda's laughing. Yeah, and she knows where I'm going with this. <laughs> the 1031 exchange provisions have been modified to only include real estate. Uh, sorry, real property. So then the question is, if I do a cost segregation study where I specifically do the study to identify personal property components that I can depreciate over a faster time frame, since I've self-identified personal property and personal property is no longer included in 1031 exchange provisions, when I do a 1031 exchange, can I roll over the, the gain associated with the personal property? And uh, I, I don't I don't know. I, I, I know that we're waiting on technical guidance to come out to really see. But I don't know if Amanda had any thoughts on that. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's really interesting you bring up that point, because even yesterday I was uh, having a conversation with a couple of different colleagues, uh, actually one, a cost segregation expert. Another one was a 1031 exchange intermediary, uh, someone who Brandon Turner, you've worked with in the past. And, you know, it's, it's kind of the three sides of the coin. We're all talking about it from our perspective. I think we are in agreement that ideally, if you had broken out Accelerate property, we still want that to be part of 1031 exchange. But as of today, it's an unknown. That does not mean we should not look at cost segregation, though, Okay, because the reality is even if you have Accelerate depreciation, breaking it out into furniture and fixture and carpeting, what you can potentially do is exclude that from the 1031 exchange, right? So, because if you're going to break out property and you sell it, well, how much is the, the carpet going to be worth? How much is the fridge going to be worth, right? Those things don't actually appreciate in value. So even if they said that's not part of the 1031, are we really going to end up paying a lot of taxes? Probably not because used carpet is not really valuable. And, and just for the listeners that are maybe you know, a little a step behind here in the conversation, the the reason this is has a lot of uh, impact is because when you fully depreciate personal property like this, you're not exp- you're not it's not an expense. You're going to have to reclaim that depreciation when you go and sell the property. And so, one way to avoid that or to at least defer that tax is to 1031 exchange. Um, just for some folks out there who might have been not following this whole thing. Yeah, recently, so I did a 1031 exchange. Amanda, you're very aware of that. Like, uh, was it last? I don't know, October or something like that. I sold my uh, 24 unit property uh, and we cleared a couple hundred thousand dollars in profit. But because I'd done a cost segregation study, I had to then go and repay. If I if I was going to pay taxes, I had to pay all that back. And I think we figured I was like 120 grand out of in taxes if I didn't do the 1031. So then I had to go do a 1031 and I did it and I bought two more properties uh, because of it. So anyway, there's a yeah, there's a whole fun story there, and maybe I'll tell it someday here on the podcast, but today is not that day. So let's move to the third thing that you mentioned there. So we talked first about the bonus appreciation, and we talked about the other thing, uh, but what about the business interest limitations? I think that guy wrote a note here. What, is, what was that? Yeah, so a lot of this was breezed over, even by me initially, but after we did a second dive, we realized that it's probably going to apply to a lot more people than we originally thought. So business interest limitations, what it is, it's a 30% limit on pretty much your operating income, at least for the next so four years, I think it goes through 2022. So what it is, it's a 30% limitation on what they call EBITDA. So earnings before interest, depreciation, or interest, depreciation, amortization, taxes. I think that was it. Yeah. So if I have like $10,000 net operating income before I take into account interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. I am now limited to a $3,000 interest deduction. So 30% of my net operating income. You're excluded from this if you have revenue, annual revenue of less than 25 million. So that's like almost everybody, I'm assuming that's listening to this. It's definitely me. So, <laughs> But there's an exclusion to the exclusion, and that's probably not the right way to say it. There's an exception to the exclusion that basically says if you're running a tax shelter, then that $25 million allowance does not apply to you. And the interest limitation at that point does apply to you. And in the past, a tax shelter has been a bad thing. It's, it's an entity that's set up purely for tax avoidance or tax evasion. There's no real economic benefit. But in this new code section, a tax shelter simply means an entity in which more than 35% of the ownership is held by limited partners. So if I'm a syndicator, I have probably given away 60 to 70% of my entity to my limited partners, my investors. All of a sudden, that subjects me to this business interest limitation. 
And all of a sudden, I'm scrambling to try to figure out how to not be subject to the business interest limitation. But this also applies to people that like, like, let's say I set up an entity and my dad comes in and he's a private equity or money guy or whatever, but he takes a 50% stake of my entity. It's just me and him. We're not doing anything big. We're buying like little $50,000 homes. If he's not actively involved in the business, he's limited in that case. He's a limited partner in that case. And all of a sudden, I'm that entity, this small entity is now subject to the business interest limitation. So it is going to apply to multiple people, not just the bigger, the bigger fish. Can we go through a specific example for maybe someone who's syndicating on a $500,000 deal with two or three partners? Can you tell how, how would this, or you make up the numbers, how would this apply to a listener for bigger pockets? Like, let's say that all four of us partner and we all own a 25% stake. And let's say that Scott and Brandon are the limited partners. So they're bringing the money to the table. Amanda and I are hustling. We're flipping and wholesaling and whatever. If Scott and Brandon are not actively involved in the business, then they could be classified as limited partners in the business. And because your combined ownership is greater than 35%, this business is now classified as a tax shelter per this section of the code, which means that we are now subject to the business interest limitation. So any, any amount of net income that we receive we now have a 30% limitation on, uh, on that, a 30% interest limitation on the net operating income. So we, we net $100,000 and we have $50,000 in interest expenses. Well, because we netted 100K, we can only take a 30K interest limitation. So the net 20K of our interest just carries forward until it can be utilized. We're not going to be able to apply it this year. Yeah, this is really interesting because, you know, for larger deals, syndication, specifically speaking, they're almost by definition, the investors are almost by definition going to be passive, right? If in most syndications, you're going to have 100 investors, you're not going to take a vote of 100 people every time you fire a manager or hire a property manager. So that does become an issue just by definition of most people are going to be passive. I think the trick or the strategy going forward is to look at, well, how can we shift the definition um, and have less interest expense? So maybe in the past, you, you took on a lot of private lenders, bank financing, that you generated a lot of interest expense. But instead of having private lenders, maybe they become your equity partners um, or you know they get some sort of a profit share so that it's no longer under the definition of interest expense, therefore being limited. So, you know, I think there will be a lot of more planning or new ways to look at how we structure these types of joint venture agreements. My, my brain's spinning. I'm, I'm thinking already about how to how to get out of this. Like, for example, could you do like a preferred <laughs> equity or preferred return, something like that? That would, yeah, uh, yeah, that's exactly just, yeah, that's exactly yeah. what we're saying. Instead of saying you're getting, you know, you're paying me or I'm paying you interest. Instead, I'm yep. giving you equity split. You're gonna get more uh, uh, participation on the capital gain down yep. the road or something like yep. that. Gotcha. And we'll have more guidance come out on this. Uh, right now, what we're telling our clients is just start thinking about if I'm going to engage in a new partnership. What? How am I going to write that operating agreement to not clearly indicate that somebody is a limited partner in my entity, right? So if we're coming back to what we were talking about, where all four of us are partners, I'm probably going to Scott and Brandon and saying, hey, we need to build a paper trail of you guys actively participating in the business at this point. And there, there, is, there is an exception. So, so real estate businesses can elect to be treated as a real property trader business. Amanda, did you want to touch on that at all or? Well, I mean, yeah, like you said, it's just that you can make an election to be excluded from this. The caveat then is you're limited to certain types of depreciation calculations. Yeah. That's different from the norm. So that is an analysis that you kind of have to go through. I imagine, I mean, for most real estate investors, you know, we're looking at accelerated depreciation, you know, right off as much as possible. So that's going to be a, a real uh, thing. You have to kind of work the numbers through and say, does it really make sense for me yeah. to elect out of this limitation? So to, to expand on that, if I make an election to be treated as a real property trader business, then I've elected out of the business interest limitations. But the the downside is that I'm no longer eligible for the bonus depreciation. So the 100% bonus depreciation we just talked about, I can't take that anymore. But I can take my full amount of interest. Okay. So, okay. So we just talked about those three things. Um, is, Amanda, is there anything you want to point out as well? So I want to give you like anything that stood out to you as... In, in, besides those as influential or impactful for our listeners from the new tax code? 
Yeah, um, I think kind of going, uh, taking it a step further beyond the 100% bonus depreciation, um, there's also Section 179, which essentially is the same thing that allows you to write off 100% of an asset that you're purchasing. In the past, it's always excluded real estate income. And um, under the tax reform for the first time, it is now also available to real estate. Um, again, not available for the property itself, the purchase price of the building, um, but it is it is eligible for a lot of other things that you would otherwise capitalize uh, for non-residential real estate. Um, and also, this is uh, pretty significant for our short-term real estate operators, uh, dormitories, apartment, you know, student housing, Airbnb. So, you know, uh, similar to the the bonus depreciation, the 179 allows a deduction of up to, I believe it's a million dollars now. Another one that I thought was interesting was an opportunity zone credit. So that's a new thing that came out. I don't know if you guys remember many, many years ago, there was the go zone credit where you invested in property. You were actually allowed to write off up to 50% of the purchase price of a real estate. This is something a, a little bit similar to that. Now the government is going to identify um, what they are considered opportunity zones. Um, based on our understanding, this is going to be uh, low income areas or, or areas areas where they're looking for real estate investors to bring in money to, you know, to build up the infrastructure. And uh, the opportunity zone, what it what it's going to allow people to do is if you wanted to sell your stocks, for example, you have Apple stocks or Tesla stocks and it's gone up significantly in the past, you'd have to pay the capital gains. You couldn't do a 1031 exchange to move it into real estate. However, um, if you were interested in buying real estate in the opportunity zone um, or if you were in, interested in, in using that money to invest in a syndication where the real estate is in an opportunity zone, then you can potentially sell your stock and pay no capital gains tax, defer it almost like a 1031 exchange, as long as you're reinvesting your money into the opportunity zone areas. And the other part that's extremely interesting for me was that currently it looks like if you actually held on to the opportunity zone asset for over 10 years, then your capital gains goes away permanently. So there's no more capital gains at all from the sale of your initial asset. So I thought that was something very interesting. We haven't really seen any deals come through yet in the opportunity zone because they're still trying to identify what those areas are. Uh, but I bet when they do, there's it's going to be a lot of real estate investors flocking over there to buy up all the real estate. There you go. Cool. Yeah, uh, I, I've never heard of anything like uh, of that at all, and that's that, that's uh, yeah, fantastic. I, I would love to hear like from you guys after one of the one or two of these have come through of yeah. like how that works in practice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're just hoping those are actually good deals because you know, uh, several You're years right. ago when they had the go zone with you know with the, from the hurricane in the Gulf, um, we had clients that had really really great tax savings. Again, writing off fifty percent of the purchase price of an investment—that's huge. But some of the issues is you had uh, you know not so good syndicators, and the deals actually weren't so good. So that's where we're ho we're hoping for this time around: good tax savings and good real estate investments. All right. So let's let's kind of summarize where we're at now. Uh, is there anything? First of all, when do when do all the changes that are happening, all these tax changes, when do they take into or come into effect? Uh, and then, is there anything that our listeners should be doing now to prepare or to better their situation because of them? Yeah, most of them were taking effect January first, twenty eighteen. At this time, I mean, Amanda might have some specifics. I don't really have specifics. We are kind of waiting on technical guidance to come out from the Treasury before we really start like implementing some of this stuff, but it's really just, just getting familiar. I mean, if you're running any sort of deal uh, management and that's, that's all the way from the syndicators to the person who's buying a single family home, it's just getting familiar with the different changes. You don't have to know the nuance, like, I don't know, the technical details, but understanding what hundred percent bonus depreciation is, understanding what the business interest limitation is, understanding the pass-through limitation, just make sure that you understand what these things are and then we can start, we can really start building things out. The one, the one piece of advice that we give to all of our clients, and we've always given this advice, but now it becomes even more imperative. When you're getting a rehab done, just make sure that it's all itemized. I don't want you to send me an, an invoice that says kitchen rehab, $50,000. I want to know exactly what went into that kitchen rehab down to the nuts and bolts. You don't have to get like that detailed, but as much as, as much as the contractor will allow without throwing his hands up and getting really mad. Right. Cool. All right. Yeah. I awesome. think, uh, on my end, I would just say, 
the main thing to do is just keep that line of communication open with your CPA. I agree with Brandon Hall. You know, it's it's not up to the investor to memorize all the rules. And I think even some of the stuff that we talked about today, um, it may or may not be actually finalized or in its final format. But the key really is just to keep your tax advisor updated. You know, you're buying a property, you're selling a property, you're getting into some kind of creative deal, you're thinking of refinancing or relocating to Hawaii. These are things that you, you want to talk to your CPA about way in advance so that you can plan ahead, you know, instead of kind of knowing that you did something wrong after the fact. Yeah, you know, and I want to expand on that. Like that, that's really like my biggest takeaway from all this is like, you don't necessarily need to know all this stuff. People listening to this right now, a lot of you guys are probably like, well, this is way over my head. I don't know what I'm doing. I you know, like, you don't need to know all this stuff. Just find somebody who does know this stuff. In other words, hire the right person. You know, like I, if I could look back on my career and one of the biggest mistakes I made in my entire investing was I waited until what, two years ago, Amanda, to hire like, like at a CPA, like to hire you. Like it, it took me like forever because I don't know. I just was arrogant and I was like, I don't need a tax person. Come on, taxes aren't that complicated. But like I, I would I would recommend people like just put that in your system, build that into your team early on. I mean, even like maybe you're I don't know, would you guys actually say the first property should they have a CPA? I mean, obviously there's some, you know, you guys are CPAs, but do you think first properties like when does somebody need that? Um, <laughs> you know, I um well, I mean, for me, I think it depends. It, it depends, right? That's everyone's favorite answer. Yeah. Um, so I don't know that you you have you know if you have a first property, do you need to have a CPA? It really depends on. I mean, it depends on how financially savvy you are, how much time you like to spend researching and things like that. You know, we have clients who who make maybe a half a million million dollars a year. You know, if they have their one property, first property, should they hire a CPA? Probably if they're not someone who's financially savvy, because, you know, if they're paying 37, 39 percent taxes, they could be saving a lot even with just one rental property. Right. But if it's someone that, you know, maybe has an accounting background themselves, not really making a whole lot of money yet and just buying a first property with, you know, and, and pretty much uh, strapped for cash, then, you, you know, you might be able to work through some of these with a lot of great information on bigger pockets or, you know, podcasts that you're hearing. So I think it kind of comes down to the person and what they have going on, too. Yeah, to, to follow up on that point, um, kind of along the same lines, if you're analytical, I would say you could probably handle your first by yourself, maybe even your second. You just have to make sure that you really catch everything because we, we always find mistakes and people, people that have done it on TurboTax or, or even H&R Block, and we're always finding these mistakes. What I would recommend that you do if you're unsure, you pull up Schedule E or whatever schedules you're preparing, just Google IRS Schedule E. Pull up the PDF. I think you can scroll all the way down to the bottom and you can see the projected hours that it takes for a non-expert to fill this stuff out. I think Schedule E is like 80 hours. I don't <laughs> think that it would actually take that long for you to do that, but just like something that you should keep in mind. Um, and then the other thing too, like we always get these people that have like really high net worths and then they want to do their own bookkeeping, right? It's like, man, your time is so valuable. Yeah. Don't don't waste your time doing this. Just offload it. Go focus on what you're doing. So in that case, I would agree with Amanda. Yeah, if, you, if you've got a high net worth and your time's not worth digging through everything, offload it as quick as you can. Yeah, I would I would generally, anybody who asks me my opinion, I will always tell them like hire, hire right pe the right people right away. Like I'm such a big believer in that because I've seen it. I've seen myself fail at it time and time again. And that's like the big lesson I learned. Like if I can sum up 2000, like the last couple of years of my life, it's like hire the right people right away. So, all right, let's move on. And we're going to actually shift gears here and head over to the, the fun part of the show, which we lovingly refer to as our fire round. It's time for the fire round. Whether you need to buy or sell, or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, Redfin's got you covered. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes to help you see new homes first. And they give you personalized recommendations based on the homes you like, so you can find a home that's just right for you, whether that's a cabin, a craftsman, or a castle. With the top-rated Redfin app, you can favorite homes, share listings with others, and schedule tours even on the same day with a local Redfin agent who can help guide you through the whole home buying process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents have the experience to help you get the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. 
With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put towards what matters most to you, like your next home. In fact, last year, Redfin saved home sellers $127 million. No matter where you are in your real estate journey, Redfin can help. Download the Redfin app to get started today. As home prices and interest rates continue to rise and inventory levels dip, it's getting harder to find quality flips and wholesale deals. When there's not enough on-market inventory to go around, it's time to start looking off-market. Lucky for you, there are millions of homeowners nationwide who own a property they need to get off their hands. I got two words for you, my friend. PropStream it. PropStream is the leading real estate data provider and recognized as a Tech 100 honoree by Housing Wire for the fourth consecutive year. With PropStream, you can search over 155 million properties nationwide using 120 plus search filters like pre-foreclosure, bankruptcy, pre-probate, failed listings, and more to help you find motivated sellers in seconds. PropStream offers both public record data and an MLS sales estimate that's over 99% accurate to help you get the most accurate comps even in non-disclosure states. PropStream also provides lead automation, skip tracing, and a marketing suite with emails, postcards, and custom landing pages to close more deals efficiently. Get started today with their seven-day free trial and get 50 leads for free. Head on over to www.propstream.com BP. That's www.propstream.com BP. You've heard us talk about it before. High interest rates are crushing real estate investors, leaving even some of the best investors in need of funding now. But with today's liquidity crisis, who can fill the demand? With Fundrise, America's largest direct-to-investor alternative asset manager, you have the opportunity to. Fundrise's new opportunistic private credit strategy was designed specifically for this new market environment. Fundrise supplies high-demand bridge financing on high-quality assets with credit-worthy borrowers. Top real estate investors get the funding they need while you walk away getting paid a healthy interest rate. To date, Fundrise has completed more than $500 million worth of private credit deals with an average net interest of 10.8%, and they've already amassed a pipeline worth more than $300 million. Don't sit on the sidelines. You can take advantage of this unique window of opportunity while it lasts with Fundrise's new private credit strategy. Ready to start? Go to Fundrise.com pockets to learn more. That's F-U-N-D-R-I-S-E dot com slash pockets. This is a paid endorsement for Fundrise. Past performance is not indicative of future results. All investments can lead to loss. Today's fire round, uh, obviously these questions on the fire round always come from the Bigger Pockets forums. Today we're going to be uh, focusing on tax questions that people in our forums asked and because they knew you guys were coming on the show. And so we're going to use this time to get some free tax advice. Of course, you are not officially any of them, probably none of them CPAs. Uh, so, you know, this is just general advice, right? Do you guys have any like disclaimers to throw out there? You're not telling people exactly what to do. How, how does that work? Yeah, I, I would just say we don't want anyone to go to jail. So um, before implementing anything, do speak with your tax advisor to confirm the right action item. Nice. Okay. Well, Second Scott, that on the record, Scott, you want to kick us off? Yeah. So I house I house hack. This is a, this is not my question, but it is very I can relate to it very much. Um, I house hack in my duplex. I'm learning that the homestead tax exemption doesn't apply to my full property since I rent the other side out. Is there a way I can still qualify for the homestead exemption without getting into trouble with the county? And then ba- just basically, how do I manage my uh, what are some basic tax tips for people that are house hacking? How do we declare income? What's personal property? What's a business expense? So what's the so if you're house hacking, what's the best way to account for everything? I would say that you so there's one. Let's say if it's a duplex, one side of it is your primary home, the other side of it is is the investment property. Generally speaking, unless you're going to be selling the primary home portion soon, improvements you're doing to your primary home really does not have a lot of tax benefits, right? It's just kind of like if I own my own home and I just want to make it beautiful, great. That's a personal preference. It's personal money that you're spending on. Now, improvements you're making to the duplex where it's going to be rented out, that definitely is going to be, you know, we talked about depreciation, bonus depreciation, maybe even uh, immediate write-offs. So it's really important to make sure you're tracking those. Something that Brandon said earlier, and we say this to our clients too, keep detailed record of what you're doing. We don't want to see $60,000 in improvements because that's not very helpful. But of the 60000 you know, split out between carpet, flooring, and all those different things so that your advisor can help accelerate. And again, this is important on the portion of the duplex that is going to become a rental property. 
Okay. So to follow up with that, the homestead exemption, I think is where you sell, if you live in a property for more than two years as a primary residence, you can sell it for a tax-free capital gain without having to do a 1031 exchange and that up, up to certain limits. How does that work when I go to sell the duplex in a few years? So assuming that you did live in that property for at least two years, right, you meet that the primary home ex gain exclusion, then what you can actually do is you can do a 1031 exchange and a 121 exclusion. So uh, we have lots of clients who do that, that they're able to you know, defer part of the gain using a 1031 because technically this is a rental property, but they can also sell and take cash out of this transaction to the extent that the gain was related to their primary home using the 121 exclusion. So it's actually the best of both worlds in that you can combine those two strategies together. That's cool. I did not, I did not know that. That's fantastic. Yeah. I didn't yeah. know that either. All right. Next question. In a recent blog post on Bigger Pockets, they mentioned that the new tax reform provides certain flow through business income with a 20% deduction, which we talked about earlier in the show, which essentially makes 20% of the profits tax free. Does this apply to income as an independent contractor, like if you're a real estate agent, or is it only W 2 earners, or is it like rental property income, or is it all of it? If your taxable income, not to be confused with your AGI, if your taxable income is below 157.5K and you're single, then yes, it applies that you just take a 20% deduction on all qualified business income. If your taxable income is below 315K and you're married, then yes, the 20% deduction applies to all business income. If you run a service-based business, so accountants, attorneys, brokers, property managers, real estate agents, and your income, your taxable income is above those two thresholds, so 157.5 and 315, if you're married, then no, the 20% does not apply. So service-based service -based businesses get phased out. Um, I do want to add one thing to this. One of the questions, I think I did read this on the forum. Unfortunately, this thing, this the 20% benefit does not apply to W-2 income. So if you're someone who's strictly working a job and you're getting W-2, you know, if, let's say you work for Google, you're getting paid W-2 income of 100,000. This unfortunately does not apply to you. And like Brandon was saying that, you know, they are, I don't know, for whatever reason, they don't like CPAs and doctors and all that. So um, if you're a higher income service provider, then you are either they're being, you know, potentially phased out or excluded from this benefit altogether. A really interesting real world example. We have a client who owns an assisted living house. So he owns the real estate and then he also has beds in there where, you know, elder patients stay. And so for him, you know, he has two types of income. He has rental income and he has income from providing medical services. So in that example, it's really important for him to track those two income very separately because there is no limitations on rental income versus there's, you know, on the service medical service side, he could be phased out or limited based on this 20% um, benefit. All right. Uh, let's see. Next one. Scott, is that your, your turn? I forget. <laughs> yeah. How about, okay. how about this one? I have several homes. I'd like to put each of them into an LLC, one LLC for each house. I would like to have an LLC as the holding company of all the other LLCs so I can just have one bank account where all the income and expenses would go into and flow out of. Is that a good structure? Is that a practical one that you've seen before? Or do you have any advice on structure for a business with this many properties? Sure. So obviously the more properties and the more LLCs that you add, the more complicated it gets. If you're running a series LLC, you can likely get away with this by having one bank account and the primary or the, the overarching company. But generally speaking, even if you have sub LLCs, if they're not series based LLCs, then you would need to have a bank account per LLC. Um, and that's just from a liability perspective. That's not even from a, a tax perspective. You need to show that the business is actually operating like a business. So if you're going to break it all up, just understand that it's going to get really complicated really quickly and you're going to have a lot to manage. But this is a conversation that you should be having with your attorney because it could be very worthwhile to do just that. Um, the, the other caveat I would add is to make sure you're aware of all the fees that are required, um, especially for any investors in California, as an example. Um, California recognizes series LLCs as different taxpayers. So in what you described, if you have a holding entity and you have three babies underneath that, that's four entities in California, each subject to $800 annual fee. So again, you know, like Brian was saying, it could get costly and complicated really quickly. Not to say it's a wrong structure, but again, you know, from our end, I always look at the cost benefit. How much benefit are you getting by having all this complexity and what is the cost? On a related question on that, this is something that I, I give the advice all the time. When people ask me about C, I mean, uh, LLCs, I say, talk to your CPA and attorney. 
But then the question I get back sometimes, and it's a really good question, who do I talk to first? And what do I do if they disagree? Right? Like, where do, how yeah. do I even start that process? I don't, I don't think there's a preference in terms of who you speak with first. Okay. What I often, what I often recommend for our clients, if they're talking to me first or attorney first, and if there's a disagreement, what I recommend is getting on a conference call or a joint meeting, because then we can bridge the gap. We want, I want to know why is the attorney recommending all these? What are actually the legal benefits? And the attorney probably wants to know what is the cost? What is the tax issue associated? And at the, at the end of the day, we try to bridge the gap so that the taxpayer can make a decision maybe somewhere in the middle, right? Not having a holding company with 10 subs. <laughs> maybe it's a holding company with three subs or something like that where they get the asset protection you know, not at the high cost of ten, twenty thousand dollars a year. Mm-hmm. And in terms of like, like who should you talk to first? I think it just depends on the personality of your service providers. Like me personally, I like to quarterback the relationship. So I like to make the introduction to the attorney and the attorneys know what page I'm on and what we're, what we're doing, but it could be vice versa too. Like if you go to an attorney and they like to quarterback the relationship, then you start there. The key though, is like Amanda said, make sure everybody's in agreement before anything is executed. We've seen, we have seen attorneys execute agreements and, and, and execute plans with our clients and they have horrible tax consequences. And if they would just would have dropped us a line, literally a, a short email before they, they executed that, we would have saved them a lot of money. So just make sure that you do talk to both before you do anything. All right. Good answer. Uh, next one. I've heard that in the new tax bill that home equity lines of credit and home equity loans, HELOCs and HEALs, the interest is not tax deductible. I've also heard that it may be in some situations tax deductible or maybe not. Can we get some clarification on that? Yeah. So HELOCs, you can still take HELOCs. You can still deduct the interest as long as the loan proceeds have been applied to either rental or business use. So that's the key. You, you can no longer take a HELOC and pay off your student loans and deduct the interest. You can no longer take a HELOC and buy a vehicle and deduct the interest. You have to use it for some form of business use. All right. So I can't. Well, it's so, OK. I got to I got to dig on this. So I really want a Tesla. I really want a Tesla, right? Can I go and call my Tesla a business expense? Because I'm, you know, let's say I'm a real estate agent or even just an investor. I want to drive around, look at properties. I need a new car. Can I call my Tesla that and then take the $100,000, 100% depreciation then uh, this year? Can I do that? Why or why not? Or can I use a HELOC to buy that Tesla and then do that? <laughs> Well, there's nothing that says you cannot drive a Tesla for your real estate business. And if your name is Brandon Turner, I don't see why you would not be required to have one. Right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, but but in all seriousness, you know, there's nothing that says you can't drive a Tesla or a Mercedes or a Hummer for your real estate business. The question is just, you know, is it uh, is it reasonable that you would be needing to drive a car for a business? OK, so, yes, if, if you're driving it for your real estate, for your book, for you know any kind of business that you have as a realtor, as an agent, as a syndicator, um, then yes, if you took out HELOC loan proceeds, use that to purchase a business, you know, a vehicle used for business, the interest is still deductible. Like Brandon said, the only one, the only time it's not deductible is if you're using it to, you know, go on vacation or something like that for your primary home. In terms of the bonus depreciation, unfortunately with the Tesla, it is not eligible for a 100% write-off. So, you know, I mean, if you paid $100,000, I don't even know how much they cost, but if it was $100,000, it would not be an immediate write-off for it. For cars, there are still certain limitations in terms of how much you can deduct every year. However, I do believe if you were actually going to buy a Tesla, I do believe there's still tax credits for federal and the state, if I'm not mistaken. All right. Awesome. So can we talk about how passive losses from real estate investing can or cannot be used to offset income from other sources, like other investments or your job? Sure. So we've, I've gotten a lot of questions on, has anything around this changed? And the answer is no. So we've still got the, if you, if your AGI adjusted gross income is 150 K, you're phased out of taking passive losses against your ordinary income. That's still all the same. So nothing along those lines has changed. If your AGI modified, technically it's modified adjusted gross income, but we always just go to AGI because our clients are like way over their heads. Um, If your AGI is between 100,000 and 150,000, you can take anywhere between zero to $25,000 in passive losses from your rentals. Uh, So if I, my rental generates net income of 10,000 and then I take depreciation and amortization and all the other expenses, I've now got a $2,000 loss. I can probably take that loss if my income's below 145-ish K. 
what, what happens though is that if my in, if my AGI exceeds 150, at that point those losses become suspended. So I can't take those losses anymore. And then we're talking about strategies that we can utilize to take those losses. So they might be buying better deals, buying better property that cash flows might be looping your spouse in as a real estate professional, or maybe you qualify as a real estate professional might be investing in a business as a passive partner so that you receive passive income to offset the passive losses. There's a lot of creative things that we can do there. So I I always tell people don't get depressed when you can't take the passive losses and don't not write things off because you can't take the passive losses, right? You still want to write everything off because at some point we will be able to utilize those losses. They get suspended until we can offset them with passive income or liquidation of a rental. All right. So this is, this is one of the next questions that we're going to ask in the fire round, but you just mentioned it here. Can you talk about what it means to be a real estate professional and how to qualify for how to qualify as a real estate professional? Sure. Um, so real estate professional, one of the most common myths that we hear about real estate professional is people are under the impression that they have to be a realtor, you know, get licensed, do open houses, you know, take people around. Um, and that's actually not true. Real estate professional is only defined in the IRS code. Okay. Uh, and you don't have to have a license. You don't have to be showing real estate. All that means is that you have to spend at least 750 hours actively involved in real estate and you have to be spending more time in real estate than all of your other non-real estate income activities combined. So, you know, common examples we see would be like a stay-at-home spouse, right? We have someone who's out working, you know, kind of a middle high income earner. And then we have another person who's a stay-at-home spouse and then they own, you know, a handful of real estate. If their income was over 150,000, generally they wouldn't be able to use any rental losses. But now if the non-working spouse decides to take the active role in leading up all the real estate transactions, and that's, you know, rentals, looking for more rentals, you know, uh, doing wholesale, being a realtor, anything that's actively involved in real estate. Now, if she can qualify as real estate professional, then you can use the rental losses to offset the W-2 income and any other income of the other working spouse as well. So it's strictly an hours and activities test, and it's not related to any sort of uh, licensing or, you know, state requirement. All right. Awesome. All right. My, uh, my last question of the fire round. So I'm, and this is a really good question. I've always wondered this as well. Uh, I'm currently looking for my first deal. If the deal fell through and this could be first deal or a millionth deal, right? If the deal fell through during inspection, can I still deduct all the money spent on the deal, like travel inspection costs, whatever? So we personally would probably capitalize those costs and apply them to the next deal instead of deducting them currently. I don't know if Amanda does anything different, but that that's typically how we would approach that. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think generally speaking, that's what we would do if this was a very first deal for someone. Now, on the other hand, if you own a rental property, you have another one to contract and it fell through. Generally, we would deduct that because you've already started your investing business. Uh-huh. Um, it does come down to uh, a lot of it does come down to risk tolerance level of the particular taxpayer. You know, if, if it's your very first deal fell through, but you can show that, you know, you're in the flip business and you've made tons and tons of offers already this year. And, you know, you're someone who's more willing to take the risk. Then there are instances where we do deduct it all in the initial year um, under the assumption that you are able to prove you've started actively working in this business. So this is actually a really interesting point that I'd love to follow up on with a more general question about business. So like if I start a couple of businesses a year and all of them fail (laughs) and none of them generate more revenue than the expenses I put in, you're saying that there's, you're allowed to potentially capitalize some of these expenses into a future business or how does that work for me as a, as a, maybe a serial failing entrepreneur that's working a (laughs) full-time job and starting some side hustles? Yeah, no. So what what I was kind of referencing was, was related to rental properties, right? So Mm -hmm. if I, if I've gone through appraisals and inspections and the deal falls through in general, we're going to capitalize those costs and we're going to apply it to the next rental property. But if I'm doing like a business, let's say I go and start a consulting business and it just never goes anywhere. I can, I can deduct those costs. The the key is going to be, is your business in service? So you have to, your business has to be open and, and willing to accept clients or willing to, uh, I don't know, buy flips like Amanda was saying in order to deduct those costs. Until that point, until you place your business into service, you can't deduct those costs. So what I couldn't do, for instance, is say that I'm gonna start a consulting business, literally take no action, and then, I don't know, deduct like a $2,500 a month 
uh, mind uh, or group fee or whatever, subscription or something like that. I, I can't do that. But I could say I'm going to try to start a consulting business, do a lot of advertising, build out like my platform and then just say, all right, well, in 2018, I just didn't get any clients, but I can still deduct it all in 2018. Awesome. Interesting. Yeah, I never really thought about that before. All right. So let's uh, let's shift gears one last time and head over to the world famous famous four. All right. These are the same four questions we ask every guest every week. And I know you guys have answered them before, but we'll ask them or ask them anyway. Uh, number one, and we can just go both of you. Number one, what's your favorite real estate related book other than anything you've written? Amanda, you want to start? Real estate related book? <sighs> That's a hard one. Can I say Rich Dad, Poor Dad? That's sure. not really real estate related. Yeah, everyone says that. It's good. It's, okay. I, I said it. <laughs> All right. I, I, I'm going to say Amanda's book. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not kidding. It was a great book. <laughs> um, no, mine, uh, mine, I always stumble with the title, but it's the 26 things you need to know about cash flow, whatever Frank, that long title that, is. Yeah, Frank Gallinelli. Yeah. 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 Good book. That one's a great, great book. It is. Cool. All right. Next one. Awesome. What's your favorite business book? That's not Rich Dad, Poor Dad. <laughs> oh, mine is the four hour work week because I, I want to be as lazy as possible. Nice. <laughs> so, so that's actually why about I asked systems. <laughs> that's actually why I asked the question I had earlier is because I read the four hour work week probably like first for the first time five or six years ago. And then I was yeah. trying to start all these online businesses. None of them generated any revenue. All no. of them incurred expenses. <laughs> and I just never did anything with the tax you know, implications of that. So I kind of missed out there. But that was that was what I was thinking of when I asked that question. Yeah. Mine is the story brand. So I literally just wrapped this book up, but it's Donald, uh, it's Donald an awesome Miller. book. Mm -hmm. yep, yeah, I Donald Miller. That too. It's very good. Yep, great book. Cool. All right. Next question, Scott. What do you guys do for fun? For me, I love cooking because I love eating. So <laughs> when I'm stressed out and tax season, I love to just go home and cook a great meal and eat it all by myself. <laughs> no, I do eat it with my with Matt and uh, my child. But yeah, that's what I like to do. Nice. Awesome. I crunch numbers. I'm just kidding. <laughs> another, another joke. Bad joke, probably. Accountant joke. Accountant joke. Um, no, I, I don't know. That reminds, I, wait, accountant joke. That reminds me of, uh, you ever watch Parks and, uh, was it? Yeah, Parks and Rec. You ever watch that show? Yeah. Oh, there's yeah. like that continual like running joke throughout the whole show of the, the CPAs that laugh at everything. I don't know. It's the, that's one of my favorite, yeah. favorite shows because of well, the, you, anyway. it, What you have to do is you have to like be able to force it out, right? But make it sound genuine. <laughs> And then, yeah, you, you get go. friends that way. Anyway, good, good. Um, no, <laughs> mine, I just started CrossFit a couple months ago and oh, nice. it's, it's been a lot of fun. Um, and you're supposed to tell everybody about CrossFit if you do CrossFit. So yes, you are. I'm telling you guys. Yeah. Wow. So, so yours is the exact opposite of my hobby, yeah. which is just eating <laughs> and I mean, no exercise. I like eating and red wine, but <laughs> nice, <laughs> trying nice. to type in workouts there. <laughs> well, cool. All right. Last question of the day. What do you guys believe separates successful real estate investors from those who give up fail or never get started? For me, I feel like, uh, well, two things, action and having good systems in place. I think if I look at all of my most successful investors, they're the ones who take the advice that's given, whether by us, an attorney or other, you know, mentor someone, um, and then they systematize it so they can repeat the process over and over again. Yeah. So those are two great ones. I, I would just throw on top of that, just understanding that failure is a part of any business and not just throwing in the towel the first time that that happens, just learning from it, figuring out how you can improve and rolling with the punches and then, and then continuing on and writing it off and writing it <laughs> off. Yeah, there you go. If we're talking about that type of failure. All right. Where can people find yeah. out more about you guys? Oh, well, on biggerpockets.com uh, and also our website, uh, which is keystonecpa.com. Yeah. And for me, Bigger Pockets, LinkedIn. Um, I, I like to take stabs at the corporate world on LinkedIn with my my posts. And then uh, nice. the realestatecpa.com and anywhere else. Yeah. Anywhere that I'm at social media wise. So. All right. Good deal. Well, thank you guys. It's been awesome. a lot of fun and super helpful. Uh, I definitely feel a lot better about the whole tax change code thing. And uh uh, hopefully everyone here listening does as well. So thank you guys. And uh, if people need to get in touch with you, they know where to find you. Uh, everyone listen to this though. You can check out the show notes at biggerpockets.com slash show 269. Uh, you can leave comments there, questions. I can't guarantee they're going to jump in and answer your tax questions, but you know, you can leave them if you really want to and uh, let them know what you thought of the show. And of course, if you yeah, enjoyed I this, I was going to say share it on your social media channels, Facebook, whatever. Yeah, and I'll chime in there that both of these guys have written what I think are really good articles, kind of just giving a little some overviews of yes. some of the changes for the new tax bill, which we will also link to in the show notes here. So you guys can check those out.
All right. All right, guys. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank Thanks you. for having us. Awesome. That was Brandon Hall and Amanda Hahn, two CPAs. I thought it was fantastic and full of a ton of information. I know I'm going to use a lot of it and got yeah. to ask some selfish questions. Yeah, I know. Me too. There's one of those shows that like, I, I want to go back and listen to again because I, I need to like take some better notes. Like In fact, while we were doing this, I was like writing notes like, make sure I do my cost segregation this year in 2018. Yeah. Like, I'm like, okay, I got to do this stuff. So anyway, yeah, it was funny. Right after we stopped recording, uh, they asked, oh, I don't remember if it was Brandon or Amanda asked, so do we bill you guys for this time? <laughs> we're like, yeah, just bill us for every hour of every single listener of the show, you know? Yeah, so 150,000 hours or so. Yeah, you know, something like that. That's good. That's a good timing. They'll make some good money off of that bill. Uh, it'll be great if they actually send us a bill just to be funny. That would be really funny. Hmm. No, what's funny, though, is that <laughs> Amanda and Brandon are both practicing CPAs, yes, who have real clients and also invest in real estate. But they give out so much great information and perspective on this subject like just like in the format they did today on our blog and yeah. through the content that they create. So definitely go check out their their stuff on the Bigger Pockets RE News Blog. That's biggerpockets.com slash RE News Blog. And you can see them on the right-hand side if you scroll down and click on them and go to their profiles. Do you want to know a little quick tip here, Trench? Do you What's know that? we have a redirect set up? You can just say biggerpockets.com slash blog. Goes to the same place. Fancy, oh, huh? Gosh, I'm learning things every day. Look at what this. do I do here? I know. Why do you say? I mean, it's, it's like it takes 20 minutes to say RE News Blog. Okay, maybe not 20, right, but. Go to, <laughs> to biggerpockets.com slash blog. There you go. <laughs> that makes way more sense. Doesn't it? I don't. Josh set up RE News Blog back in like, you know, 1912. And, uh, you know, since then, you know, we've cleaned up the site a little bit. Anyway, well, now you know. The more you know. It's like yeah. that. NBC logo thing insert here. Anyway, all right, we got to get out of here. But well, uh, last thing we yeah. will have, there's a lot of things, that, a lot of resources that were discussed today yes. on the podcast. We will be linking to those things uh, in the show notes of this episode, which you can find at biggerpockets.com slash show 269. All right. And which remember, oh, go ahead, what? I was going to say, that is a sensible URL that makes, that is very easy to say. It is. That's much easier to say than like RE News blog slash show dot, Actually, that's just a redirect as well. But anyway, uh, and a reminder from the quick tip this uh, earlier on the episode, uh, the tax book, the book on tax strategies for savvy real estate investors is on sale right now, 20% off on biggerpockets.com slash store. So get it there and you get a bunch of cool bonuses, including an entire conversation about how solo 401ks work, which I really wanted to talk about that today. We did not get time. Uh, so definitely check that out. That hour long video I did with Amanda is unbelievable. You're going to be blown away at how cool solo 401ks are. They're super cool. Anyway, check it out. And with that, Scott, go get in your nine degree weather and go get some lunch or something. Ah, yes, I'm very hungry. So I will <laughs> All do right. that. All right, guys, thanks so much for being a part of Bigger Pockets, and we will see you around. Make sure you leave us ratings, reviews, tell your friends, and uh, you know, be awesome. So thanks right. for being a part of BP today. For BiggerPockets.com, my name is Brandon. My name is Scott. Signing off. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. The market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom and the best investors know it's not about timing the market. It's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into the real estate investing game or take your game to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com deals and enter a few details about what and where you want to buy and bam, instantly match with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.